Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Andy Ricketts, News Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we'll be featuring a discussion with Comic Relief's Chief Executive Samir Patel about how to move your organisation's digital transformation forward with purpose. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we'll be looking at the campaigning wins of 2022 so far. Spoilers, there are actually quite a few of them. Like, it's a really packed Good News Bulletin, and I'm very excited about it. Can't wait. So, Rebecca, here's a question for you. Have you ever found out that someone was talking about you behind your back? Right. So we had this uh, conversation yesterday. We actually, I should just side note, we were sitting in the office next to each yes. other. And that has only happened maybe twice in like the last four or five months. Uh, so that was very lovely. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, we, we started having this conversation to prepare for the episode. And you turned to me and went, well, surely you must have a story about this. <laughs> to which my immediate response is, sorry, wh- <laughs> what, what makes you say that? Um, and my follow-up question is, uh, what are you saying about me behind my back? <laughs> and who are you saying it to? Um, so yeah, basically, I've just spent the last 24 hours stewing in paranoia because apparently, obviously, people are talking about me behind my back. So uh, thanks for that. Well, I think I should note at this point, Rebecca, my side of the story in that I immediately said to you afterwards, nothing I have been saying nothing behind your back. <laughs> and I can genuinely say with my hand on heart that I don't think I've ever said anything negative about you behind your back that I wouldn't say to your face. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, given that we have a professional relationship and I'm responsible for editing a fair degree of your writing, you know, it's <laughs> probably fair to say. You do routinely say, why would you write this? What is wrong with you? I've told you not to do this in, in the most gentle and devastating way possible. Yeah, that is true. You're pretty I mean, upfront. I mean, to be fair, you know, it's usually relating to minor typos, commas, spelling mistakes, that kind of <laughs> stuff. You know, as we yeah. said yesterday, you're a bigger picture person rather than a, a fine details <laughs> individual and you are much the better for it oh well thank you yeah yes that isn't what my cv says my cv says i'm uh, very detail orientated um so yes has anybody ever talked about me behind my back i don't know by definition logistically it's it's hard to know uh maybe they do um i I do have a story about a friend of mine um who was in one of these somebody asked this question and i got over myself um yeah the first story i thought of was uh, i have a friend of mine who was in one of these whatsapp message threads that you end up on when you're invited to a friend's hen do now andy you may not have experienced this you may do but you end up you know you end up in a group of you know 10 to 15 women depending on you know the size of the hen group and you know maybe it's a group of your closest friends maybe you know one friend and then you know everybody else is is your friend's friend the bride's friends right um and sometimes you find out that you have loads of friends in common and sometimes you find out you sort of find yourself looking at your friend going why are you mates with these guys um <laughs> Lindsay, our producer is just nodding quietly on the video <laughs> camera here um you know and, and it, it becomes you know that there becomes a bit of and you get sort of personalities and i've been on whatsapp threads with like competing bridesmaids uh who you know we should do this and we should do that and she'd love a spa weekend she'd hate a spa weekend and it it goes back and <laughs> forth and it you know it, it's all a bit tense and a bit weird and and you kind of have to be on the every time your phone pings you start to twitch um and my friend was on one of these whatsapp groups and i think she just was not getting on with anybody particularly well and she got a message that really annoyed her and she turned to her partner 
while holding the phone in her hand and started just laying into these girls are really annoying me I don't really want to go on this hen do I can't really be bothered with it it's so much money you know I don't think the bride's going to enjoy it they're really annoying me and then she looked down and realized that she had her hand on the little record button where you and it says release to send message on a whatsapp for a voice message thing and she's just frozen there going oh that is everything i've just said is recorded there so they will know i've been talking about them behind the back fortunately she kind of because she realized she was able to like stop the message sending but yes uh that was, that was <laughs> yeah that does sound like a close call uh, yeah. i mean what are the chances that you would be accidentally recording a conversation right like how do you even do that <laughs> unless you're in a spy thriller or actively a politician on you know doing an interview uh i don't know a cautionary tale indeed yes um so yes why are we talking about about just conversations behind people's backs well the reason is is that seems to be what happened to the national trust this week the guardian newspaper reported that andrew murison the conservative mp for southwest wiltshire was appointed chair of a new all-party parliamentary group that will scrutinize the work of the national trust but this group was set up entirely without the charity's knowledge that is a bit weird so yeah all party parliamentary groups or appgs are groups that enable parliamentarians to discuss matters relating to a specific subject or an organization and there are hundreds of these groups about very some very broad subjects some very specific subjects but it is unusual that one would be set up without the involvement of the organization concerned that that is weird well, it's certainly entertaining if you want to google list of appgs and you can find there are hundreds of these groups relating mainly to you know i guess what most people would consider to be extremely important and um worthy subjects for everything from citizens rights to um poverty uh but uh, food banks anything like that but then there's also loads that just seem well a bit mystifying to be honest yeah and there'll be kind of big industries or smaller aspects of one industry like there's a wood paneling industry one which like i i have nothing i have no idea about the size or importance of the wood paneling industry um but it just it seems yeah, to seem... it's bark it, it spark it's bigger than it's bike, probably isn't it <laughs> ah the punnage has started <laughs> <laughs> this is what we get you on for i uh, <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's just this, there, there's a huge range of them. Uh, some of them are about kind of quite niche conditions, health conditions that people want to raise awareness of or feel that, you know, there needs to be more parliamentary time spent on it, that sort of thing. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a diverse and interesting kind of collection of organisations. So tell me about this one. Tell me about um, Andrew Morrison, MP. So, yeah, so he's previously been critical of the National Trust. In November 2020, he called for an independent review of the charity over the publication of its report into links between colonialism and slavery and the properties it manages. He said at the time that National Trust properties stand as silent witness to an unequal past and said, we don't need to be force fed that by the Trust's high command. It is there and it's in your face. Okay, side note, I know, I know we talk about the National Trust far too much on this podcast, but it just, it just, this stuff about them being under attack for, you know, his objection seems to be that a historical charity is explaining history too clearly for him. 
Um, and I just, I don't understand what charities are supposed to do in the face of that nonsense. Um, you know, also don't, just don't read the report. They're not, they're not stapling the report to every wall of every house they own. Do you know what I mean? Like it just yeah. don't, don't read this particular report that's upset you. I don't know. Um, so, uh, in a statement, a spokesman for the National Trust said, uh, it always engaged in good faith with politicians who are interested in our work, which, you know, I think is, uh, a fairly uh, elegant little uh, comment there. But uh, the statement went on to say, we remain concerned that an all-party parliamentary group on the National Trust was set up without informing or involving the National Trust and at such short notice. We approached the MP who proposed this new group, Andrew Morrison, but he has not responded. We want to work with all parliamentarians across the political spectrum and look forward to constructive engagement with this group. Um <laughs> Yeah, since this story came out on uh, Monday, there's actually there was uh, the first initial meeting of this APPG to set it up, um, and uh, yeah, the, it seems that actually what's happened is that a lot of MPs from across the political spectrum actually, we understand between twenty and thirty MPs, um, although you know we weren't in the room, no one else was in the room apart from MPs that basically a lot of MPs showed up to show their support for the National Trust. The National Trust has sort of thanked them for for that. But there is a feeling that actually this, what's happened here is this group has been set up and then it's been reported on sort of by The Guardian, The Telegraph, in a way that makes it sound like a parliamentary inquiry or something has been set up, that they're kind of talking about exposing the National Trust to parliamentary scrutiny, which isn't really what APPGs are for. You know, there is, lots of people will be familiar with the APPG on charities and volunteering. And it's about ensuring that, you know, issues that need to be raised are raised with politicians. It's not really kind of a a scrutiny sort of thing. And it, it does feel like it's been set up to... Um, it's set up to frame it as this is MP is clamping down on on the National Trust, which which isn't isn't the case. Um, yeah, Andy, what were your thoughts on this story? Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly true that it does almost give the impression that it is something official, where as as we know, APPGs don't have any official function in Parliament other than for individuals to be able to discuss issues relating to a particular topic. So it does as you say, look like they're trying to sort of give credence or official sort of status to people who want to have a pop at the charity. And, you know, as we know, with all that's been going on, and as we've reported in Third Sector with the Restore Trust group of people who have been wanting to influence how the National Trust is operating and get people elected to its uh, national board, the, the 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 trust has faced lots of opposition and criticism um and a lot of it stemming from this um report into slavery that you were just talking about rebecca so i, I mean i do think it's kind of sad in a way that the charity's almost being blindsided by this group being set up because ordinarily and and you mentioned the the charities appg that has the NCVO, the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, provides the secretariat for that. So while they are, the membership of an APG is restricted to MPs and peers, usually, well, often they will have meetings that are open to um, anybody who wants to come in and has an interest in that particular subject. And that's what the NCVO does with the, the charities one. Yeah, it's very much working in partnership with MPs there to, to have these discussions. So from what we understand, it seems like you know, the concession that's been reached is that the National Trust will be involved in the secretariat of that now. 
um so that so they they will have some say in what goes on but yeah it's just just to set up an appg about a group without informing them is is yeah it's unusual and, and then to ask them to do all the donkey work behind the scenes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> seems even ruder. But there we go. It's one thing to talk about somebody behind their back and then to ask them to take minutes is uh, <laughs> it's quite something. <laughs> Absolutely. But it'll be interesting to see what happens there with the group because you wonder whether it almost might split into kind of two factions where there are groups of individuals who are supportive of the charity and, mm. and others who are maybe more critical so it will be interesting to see if they do decide to have any public meetings and how that works because that could get quite ugly possibly if that is the case yeah and i just think it is worth pointing out that this is part of a wider kind of culture wars that phrase you want to you want to avoid using that phrase to to avoid giving it credence but that's kind of what we're looking at here is is just a get a group of people who don't want to talk about the impact of Britain's history on, on you know, unless it's all just waving bunting and, and bandstands. I don't know. Like, they don't want to talk about Britain's history. They don't want to point out things that are wrong with Britain today. They don't want to make the country better. It, it just is a very narrow definition of who gets to talk about history, who gets to decide what the culture of the UK is. And it's just ridiculous and infuriating in equal measure um so yeah this feels like the latest part of it and from a journalistic perspective we hope to be invited to the next meeting we do indeed yes please last week third sector held its third annual tech summit the virtual event brought together senior leadership product technology hr and digital teams to explore how charities can optimize the use of technology in their mission to drive positive change to kick off the event, Third Sector's editor, Emily Burt, sat down with Samir Patel, Chief Executive of Comic Relief, to discuss how the charity has moved its digital transformation forward with purpose during the pandemic. Here's how it went. Well, without further ado, I'm now delighted to welcome our first speaker of the summit, Samir Patel, who is going to talk to us today about make, moving forward his digital transformation with purpose at Comic Relief. Samir is the chief executive of the grant-making charity Comic Relief, um, and he joined the charity in March 2021, and I'm sure has plenty of big and exciting plans for the future of the organisation. So hi, Samir, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So it's great to have you with us. Obviously, you've come into the top job at Comic Relief at a really, really interesting time. Um, we know that the pandemic forced charities to accelerate their implementation, implementation of digital tools and new tech in a way that you know, no one could have predicted two years ago. Um, where do you think that we're going to be kind of going from here? And, you know, to look at Comic Relief specifically, how did using digital tools and technologies help Comic Relief to sort of fulfill its objectives at a time when, you know, so many charities were facing these, these severe disruptions? Yeah, I guess, well, there, there are a number of things I think that, you know, we've done some we were kind of forced into doing um, some, you know, we had been planning for. But certainly, I think at the start of the pandemic, even before I joined, you know, we delivered you know, something which seemed a bit impossible, essentially organized uh, a fundraising COVID appeal called the Big Night In with BBC's Children in Need. And in a few weeks, that raised nearly 70 million. But some of the ways we were able to do that, you know, very quickly is we had, you know, content filmed on people's phones. 
Um, you know, we were thinking of ways where people could take part that makes it easy for them. So, you know, even when I joined last March and we were in the midst of our Red Nose Day campaign, you know, we really focus on accessible online fundraising content. So challenges that you can do at home. You know, we've made sure that our social media content is as entertaining as ever. Uh, you know, we know more and more people are spending time online. Um, and there are also some practical things that we've been working on. So, you know, we've accelerated the move of our online shop to a platform called Shopify. And that helps just make sure that we have a platform because we sell a lot of merchandise through partners. So, for example, if a retailer uh, had to close during the pandemic, we at least still had our own shop where we could um, get merchandise out. Um, we've also done things like we've created our own prizes platform. Um, so this is, uh, you know, as we continually move to diversify our income, uh, we've been, you know, giving people a chance to win sort of once in a lifetime prizes. And so we want to have our own platform. So we're not relying on third party. Um, we don't have to go through all of the rigid technology or fees associated with that. And so we can control the process, you know, legal and compliance, everything kind of end to end. Um, we hosted a, a really great online prize around Dungeons and Dragons for that, which was, uh, you know, our, our most successful online prize ever. So, yeah, we, we've been thinking about a number of platforms that just enable us to be a bit nimble to have some control over what we're trying to do during changing circumstances. And then, of course, there are things like just making sure that we are um, engaging over digital channels as much as possible. We've launched on both TikTok and Snapchat in the past 12 months with both original content as well as some archive content. You know, so we did a Snapchat comedy series with Joe Lysette. Um, and it's really, you know, it, it is about finding more ways to unlock income, but also just about really meeting audiences where they are uh, and being really relevant to them. So, yeah, I think there's really a range of things I could I could go on. But, yeah, those are just some of the ways that we've used digital tools and technologies. And, of course, Comic Relief would really be famous for its, you know, big TV telethons. And that was a really traditional fundraising model. You spoke there about how you were able to deliver the big night in early on in the pandemic. But, of course, you know, your Comic Relief, your Red Nose Days would be a, a massive annual event for you. And that would all have been happening live. But as we've said, you know, I think we do accept that uh, we won't be returning to that really normal pre-pandemic environment, even though I'm sure your telethon will be running for years to come. You're looking at those new diverse channels. So what are your plans for making sure that tech and digital is really built into the fabric of all of your future strategy developments? Yeah, so I think that it's, um, you know, it's going to be essential to everything we do, partly because, you know, we, as I said before, we have to really meet people where they are, we have to go and engage people, we have to make things compelling and entertaining, and we can't expect people to come to us, and we can't expect that everyone's going to tune in to um, a scheduled TV show. So it's really about being out in different formats and different channels, you know, really being relevant and present in people's lives in a way where they don't have to do a lot of work for it. And so, you know, that we're, we've done things around podcasts, we've done things in gaming, um, maybe a particular area of work around pride, uh, where we're really just trying to build that sort of relevance with our supporters that are, that's really about um, the whole year round. We're looking at um, esports as part of our uh, partnership with the Commonwealth Games through our sport relief brands. And then we've also tried things such as, 
you know, an art auction where people can, you know, bid online. And then there's just some of the building blocks around digital engagement, digital fundraising, email, and so forth. So I think all of that is is important for our strategy moving forward. But I also think that, you know, in terms of strategy, there's very much about how do we underpin data underneath everything we do. Uh, Mm -hmm. We need to go through a bit of a digital and data transformation. Um, We need some more serious infrastructure uh, so we can really unlock the potential of, you know, data and those technologies. So um, we're in the process of going through that right now. And there'll be lots of things around, you know, ways of working and other things that we'll have to factor in as well. Now, you you touched on data there, and I think that's a really uh, important point for us to just look at. You you are creating all of these new channels and all these income streams and meeting people, as you say, where they are. Now, presumably, that means you are going to be gathering a whole bunch of new data about potential new donors or potential new service users um, and, and those people who are consuming your content. Um, what can organizations be doing to make sure that, you know, they are understanding and engaging with data like this in a responsible way? And as you say, sort of building those infrastructures in a way that is like safe and secure. Yeah, well, there there are the obvious things around making sure that you're doing things that are GDPR compliant and, you know, you're not really capturing things that are, you know, making people personally identifiable. But I think that there's a there's more to think about when it comes to data and responsibility. When we think about things like diversity or inclusion, you know, I am a huge advocate of being data driven. Um, you know, I've seen the power of that throughout my career, but it's not solely being about data. So, for example, we might get data that says, okay, this audience donates and gives money. And that can create a cycle where all you're, all you're doing is kind of going to that audience and then you're missing out on opportunities or you're excluding other people from being able to engage with you. So I think there has to be a combination of there's data around what people are doing, but there's also insights into different audiences and stakeholders that you have to factor in. Um, and then, of course, you know, how are you using the information? Um, what are you trying to get across? You know, what is your... Is this about kind of targeting people online to, you know, get more money out of them? Or is it about an authentic connection? So I think there are lots of considerations. But one of the more interesting ones, I think, is around is around diversity and being open minded that the data will only tell you so much. But I think that's why hand in hand with data is test and learn is you've got to keep trying new things and you've got to keep trying to talk to people in ways that resonate with them and talk to new audiences and and then see what the data says about that. So it's a combination of relying on data, but also trying new things. And on trying new things and the importance of learning to be really agile when you're an organization, um, you know, trying to, to build things in this new environment. Um, I think a big part of that is is probably to do with sort of being able to test and also being willing and prepared to fail when things don't necessarily go right. And that's a part of figuring out what works for you as an organization. Can you give me any examples of sort of testing and failing at Comic Relief? And do you have any advice for sort of how you pick yourself up after doing that? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I think that, um, you know, uh, my background is very much digital and, and test and learn. And, and we've certainly tried some things at Comic Relief. I think we're trying to take more of a you know, an ROI approach to what we do of really assessing, let's try something out, let's see how it's performing, and then let's scale it up based on those results. 
or let's even model and forecast what we're trying to do here, see if it's worthwhile. Um, and if not, let's maybe shift that budget to something else. So there is some process around that. And there are some activities, you know, we were going to launch in December and we decided not to because essentially, uh, you know, we did some calculations and thought that the return there just wasn't going to be worth it for us. And we haven't always, you know, thought that way. So I think that, um, but the thing around test and learn is it's easy to say, uh, and everyone kind of would probably say they want to test and learn. Um, it's much harder to do because you have to look at all of the underlying, you know, structures and processes that enable you to test and learn. So it's not as simple as um, thinking of this as you'll put some content out there and, and you'll test it. So for example, you know, for us to launch a new channel takes a long time because of going through all the legal processes and checks around it. So um, that has to be looked at and that has to be addressed. So we can try something new on a new channel. And the way we measure things and report on things also needs to change if you're going to a test and learn mindset. And then in the context, probably most charities are in right now with, you know, heavy income pressure, that's a bit of a mixed message to your team. Because on the one hand, you're saying, you know, we have to go get this income, you know, we have to raise money, but then we're saying, let's test and learn. And when someone's put under income pressure, they're often going to rely on what they know best and what's worked in the past. And so why would you want to take a risk, um, especially with limited budgets on something that doesn't work? So there is a culture piece there and it has to start, you know, at the top and move through all levels of the organization to really enable that. But you have to look at all sides, the enabling structures, as well as, you know, the culture and mindset around it. Absolutely. Now, um, you talked there about um, needing kind of culture points in there. Um, and, and, and in that test and learn process, how at Comic Relief have you been assessing where there are digital gaps that need to be filled so you can establish if you're under income pressure? Where are you diverting your attention? Where are you prioritizing things? How do you assess that? And do you have any advice for charities who are kind of trying to do the same? Yeah, well, we've, you know, we we have, and maybe are still going through a little bit of a maturity assessment to just really try to get, uh, and we're using some external expertise to help us with that, to just really try to get a more definitive view about what are our capabilities today and what could they be? Because I think that, um, you know, you can hear a lot from everyone across the organization about what's not working and what is working and so forth. And it, and it is sometimes hard to get down to a source of truth about what are we actually capable of doing or not. And so I think something like a maturity assessment can be helpful to really look at indicators and take it out of the subjectivity and to go down to, for example, something like data to go down to really minute detail about, well, let's look at the data coming into this system and going out of this system and what's working and what's not and saying, okay, well, if that's not working, that is an indicator that, you know, we're not quite mature in this area yet. So it, it can be a bit of detailed work, but I think it's important to try to get a baseline of what the capabilities are today and um, and then where they are and then how you can chart a path forward to get there. And of course, Comic Relief um, is a very large charity as they go in the sector. Um, you have probably all kinds of infrastructure and tech support that a lot of smaller charities would not actually have. So as a larger organization, what do you think um, you can be doing to sort of support smaller colleagues to also navigate the challenges that you've discussed today? You know, we, we actually are, are part of a, a sort of tech for good fund um, with Paul Hamlin Foundation. Uh, we support hundreds of smaller charities um, and really to make sure that they can 
uh, not be limited by their technology and what they want to do. Um, and this also extends to as a as a kind of funder, you know, the funding that we offer to organizations doesn't stop at just financial support. So we will offer them additional support as well. And if that is around their own storytelling or their technology, we'll basically consider everything. So I think there's a responsibility when you are supporting or funding an organization to really help them with whatever they need to unlock their own potential and not really constrain what you think the income should go to. It needs to be a very trust-based uh, relationship there. So um, yeah, I think that we we have a responsibility. I think that if we see ourselves as part of an ecosystem, you know, the more that people are able to, you know, raise money towards good causes, the better off we all are. Well, then we want to be part of that and we want to help enable that. So uh, yeah, we definitely see that as a responsibility um, and we definitely see it as an ecosystem that we're supporting. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, I have some audience questions which have come in. I'm going to put those to you now. So um, what the first question is, says it's interesting to hear uh, you view TikTok as a means to help diversify your income. Can you expand on that a little bit? So uh, we've just launched our TikTok channel. Um, I think right now it is it is a little bit more of an engagement mechanism, but we are testing some um, fundraising mechanics. So yeah, I can't I can't say too much more about it yet as we're still kind of identifying the data. But I think the important thing is to it's just to get out into different channels and try things. Um, a great example of this is actually uh, GE, General Electric, this huge industrial conglomerate who, you know, 10 or 15 years ago just decided to try things out on different social channels and ended up building this huge following outside of their B2B customer base, which gave them a lot of um, kind of brand clout and gave them some other ideas for, you know, businesses and things they could do. So even though it's not in the charity context, their philosophy was, if there's a new channel, we're just going to go out and try some things on it and see what happens. And they did it in a way that was native to the channel. So on Instagram, which was very visual, um, they just put pictures of beautiful jet engines and beautiful machines, basically. And I think they called it beautiful machines and it got this huge following of, you know, aviation fans and other things. But so I think it's a little bit of that mentality is we may not always know what the return is, or we may not always even know how to make money out of it. But I think that there's still value to say uh, we still need to get out and engage audiences and be relevant and just try some things. And then, you know, along the way, test some different mechanics out and see what happens. And on the subject of that, again, we're back on testing again. I have another question which says, you know, how do you manage to get new ideas past the more risk averse people in your organization? Um, I don't always. <laughs> so, exactly. so I suppose, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, what I've found is that there's no lack of ideas. Um, turning ideas into action is is the hard part, really. And so, um, you know, we haven't completely cracked this at Comic Relief. It's something we're working on. We're also working on a new strategy, which might help help us figure out how to do this better in the future. But essentially, I do think it goes back to um, what I was saying earlier around it's easy to say test. It's easy to talk about ideas, but you really have to look at the skills, the structure and the processes that underlie everything. And are the conditions really there to um, to deliver on ideas? And so. We, we also have things like in terms of risk, 
you know, trying to get buy-in across the board from board through all of staff of what the risk appetite is across different areas and set that out very intentionally. Because it's not like there's one sort of risk profile for the organization. In some areas, you're willing to absorb more risk than others. Um, but really having the intentional conversation about that with everyone to say, this is an area where, where we are willing to maybe try some things and take some risks. And now let's look at, do we have the conditions in place uh, to do that? So I think there's a lot of intentionality around it, but it's also just looking at the things underneath it that will enable it to happen. Uh, someone says, hi, Samir, uh, you mentioned art and art events and, and online auction sales. Um, can you tell us a bit about what happened with that? Was it successful and what did you learn? Yeah, it was very successful. Um, we, we, did it, uh, we did an art auction um, with Philips. Uh, Philips were a great partner for us. Philips is a, a gallery and an um, art auction house. And uh, they were an amazing partner. They really helped us curate you know, an amazing range of artists. So we had Tracy Emin, Anthony Gormley, um, you know, a few others, Michael Armitrage and Caroline Walker. And so it was just a really great lineup. We did it as a bit of a, again, a test. Um, it was a small event. Uh, we had a little bit of an income total, which we surpassed. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, what we learned is that there's definitely an appetite Um we really we really made sure though that we connected the artists with some of the causes we worked on um and that was basically our way in it wasn't sort of can you donate a piece of art um it was essentially we know that you're passionate about mental health and you've talked about it um here's here's work we're doing in that area here's what we believe around it this is why it's important to us and we'd love your support and raising some money towards this. So it really started from the impact and the cause side. Um, and that enabled us to kind of, uh, to really tap into what people believed in. So we did a lot of work of really making sure we're going to the right people, you know, with the right causes and themes. Um, so yeah, it was very successful. And I think it's something that we'll do, um, you know, much more of. Fantastic. Thank you. And I think we have time for one more quick fire question, although it is quite a big one, um, which says, uh, what innovations have you seen in how Comic Relief has dispersed its funds to the people and the communities that you help? We've done a number of things in this area. I think, you know, just thinking about where the sector is heading, what the research is around what different communities need, and very much trying to you know, take the power away from us and kind of shift that over to um, people who are really embedded in the communities where um, the issues need solving. So, you know, we've really taken a trust-based approach, um, a much more relational approach to grant giving. And that trust-based approach kind of changes a lot of the um, traditional ways in which we give funding because it changes um, how you define what the issue is, how you design an application, the criteria you come up with, how you measure things, it all changes. And that is a uh, difficult journey for a lot of people. When, when your board wants a very simple or traditional impact metric that maybe doesn't make as much sense when you're taking a more trust-based approach. Um, and so we're even doing things like uh, we're removing ourselves from being the assessors you know, and we're using people with lived experience um, to really assess sort of grant applications. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just there to kind of provide another um, point of, of view on it. But they're really the ones who are making the recommendation around what should get funding because they're closer to the issue and they have the experience. So 
It's very much a participatory approach. It's also co-creating and co-designing, you know, funds and funding calls with communities. So um, this is becoming embedded across all of our work. And I think it's uh, the learnings from this will be very interesting um, over the next few years and, and beyond. But I think it's really important to us to take that approach. Um, and I think that there will be lots of implications about measurement, about reporting and, and lots of things to come. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Samir, we are now out of time. Thank you to everybody for your questions. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you today. You've got the conference off to a flying start. So thank you. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, a positive or quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. So, yeah, I've got a really positive start to the year. Um, thanks very much to Kirsty McNeil, who's the Executive Director of Policy and Advocacy at Save the Children. Um, so she tweeted this fantastic Twitter thread um, earlier in the week. What she said at the start of the thread was, don't let anyone tell you campaigning doesn't work or you don't have any power. Here's a little thread of campaigning wins so far in 2022. So she tweeted this on the 4th of February, which is like 35 days into the new year. And this was all the progress that have been made so far. I appreciate their campaigns that have been going on for a long time. But, you know, it's it's stuff has moved this year and um, that is fantastic. So and she was she was putting things on this bill and then people were just tweeting her adding stuff and it just got longer and longer and longer on this um uh, on this twitter thread uh so the first one up is um a bill which would make british sign language a legally recognized language has received government backing uh so the proposed law which passed its first hurdle in the commons would require public bodies to promote the language and sort of use it in the same way that you know in wales they use welsh which is absolutely fantastic so next up the government has announced a plan for a fairer school food system for all children no matter where they live uh so school food standards being monitored and checked. This was something that the youth-led campaign group Bite Back 2030 had been campaigning with their Spill the Beans campaign and it seems that the government has listened and there is, you know, we're going to be less discrepancy in terms of school food, which is fantastic. So speaking of food, um, the food poverty campaigner and chef Jack Monroe has been um, campaigning around this issue of inflation and how inflation is measured. So Monroe had complained that everyday essentials were going up in price by more than the official inflation rate, hitting poorest people hardest. And she was saying the official way that inflation is calculated failed to reflect quite how big these price rises were for very basic items that people were buying. Um, and she's been campaigning about this uh, quite specifically. And recently, uh, the Office for National Statistics has taken a look at it and said, yes, it's going to be changing how it measures prices. It agreed that one inflation rate doesn't fit all and said it would soon be publishing a wider variety of cost of living metrics, which I think is, is such an interesting campaign. Uh, if you follow Jack Monroe on Twitter, look through for that Twitter thread where she was just outlining going through like very basic supermarket items and some of them have gone up by you know in price by like 300 percent so the idea that inflation is only by you know 7.5 whatever it is she's like that, that that's not that's not reflecting it properly it's such an interesting campaign and it's brilliant that she's had this impact and it was a really powerful twitter thread and obviously not only highlighted the fact that some of the basic food items have gone up massively in price but also some of the more luxury items that would typically be bought by more sort of middle class families have nowhere near gone up as much during the same sort of period you know she's saying you can buy a sort of 10 pound meal for two that should cost like 25 pounds now by um the same measure but it still basically stays at a tenner so life gets more expensive for those who can least afford it yeah that's such a good point 
Um, and yeah, amazing that it's had that impact. Then we've also had a government U-turn over the next eight years. Uh, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office has committed to investing $1.5 billion on tackling global malnutrition, which again really awesome. MPs have also committed to action to provide data on the secretive people who anonymously own tens of thousands of UK properties through offshore companies. So essentially what this is going to do is prevent people from using the UK property market to launder money and and keep their identity secret while they're doing it. Uh, We've also had house builders being told to fix unsafe cladding on low buildings. No leaseholder living on a building higher than 11 metres, which is around four to six storeys high, will ever face any costs for fixing dangerous cladding. The housing secretary has said. We've also had campaigns, successful campaigns around the banning of child marriage, virginity testing and hymenoplasty, um, which should hopefully come into law this year, which is going to be fantastic. We've got a bill that would require public bodies to set well-being targets, which has passed through the laws and is now onto the commons. Um, we've also got a new offence of breastfeeding voyeurism with a maximum sentence of two years, which has been included by the Ministry of Justice in an amendment to the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. Now, obviously, we've talked on the podcast about everything that's wrong with that bill. There are many things wrong with it. But actually, this is quite good news. Don't take pictures of women while they're breastfeeding or anybody while they're breastfeeding. Stop doing that. Um, we've also got the government's going to bring in a landlord register and bring standards in the in the private sector in line with social housing, uh, which yeah, anybody who's rented and had a bad landlord will will be pleased about that because, yeah, it's fantastic news. Um, there's, there are so many more. Like I said, this thread just kept growing and growing and growing, but it's just, it's been uh, just a really nice positive thing. So if you're feeling a little low and tired and, and February-ish, like February is a rubbish month, um, I highly recommend taking a little look at this to see what incredible things can be achieved, have been achieved by campaigns, and of course charities among them we'll be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then and probably for some considerable time afterwards i'm andy ricketts (laughs) i'm rebecca cooney uh thank you to samir patel uh to our editor emily burt for doing the interview to our producer lindsay riley at rethink audio we'll see you next week (laughs) 